25 years ago this month, a gay college student was brutally beaten, tied to a fence post, and left there on a cold Wyoming night. Matthew Shepard died in a hospital five days later. His murder shocked the world. His devastated mother took action. Those young men had horrible childhoods, horrible family life. Doesn't excuse what they did that night. I blame society equally, if not more, for creating the environment that made them think it was okay to do that to Matt. Our goal now is to change that. 11 years later, she got sexual orientation added to hate crime laws. But lately, queer folks are more and more under attack. Just ahead on Queer Power Hour, we'll hear from LGBTQ leaders and from you about the good and the bad since Matthew's October 1998 murder and what we can and must do. We'll take your calls live on the air. Stay with us. Welcome to the Queer Power Hour, which tonight is being hijacked, or rather I should say produced by Out in the Bay, by me and producer Kendra Klang. I wish it were for a more fun topic, but this evening's topic is an important and relevant one as LGBTQ people here and globally face resurging threats to their rights, security, and safety. The next minute, I'll warn you, is intense, describing some horrid violence. It's short, though, so please bear with us. It'll get better. We have a great panel with positive things to share, too. In October 1998, 25 years ago, newspapers, radio, and TV stations spread the news about a horrific tragedy. It was a gruesome discovery at this fence. Late Wednesday afternoon, as the sun was setting, two bicyclists approached. And at first, they said it looked like a scarecrow had been tied to the fence. Instead the lifeless, savagely beaten body of 21-year-old Matthew Shepard, a University of Wyoming freshman, a gay man, barely alive tonight in a coma, brain damaged, and on life support. Today, two young men, Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney, who whispered an obscenity as he came into court, were charged. In the county of Albany. Kidnapped, robbery, and attempted murder. A hate crime, according to police, who say the two met Shepard in this Laramie bar, tricked him into believing they were gay, too, then the three left together. It was 1 a.m. Wednesday morning, but Shepard, a small man, was allegedly beaten with the butt of a pistol, burned with cigarette butts, and finally tied spread eagle to the fence, left to die. Matthew Shepard was certainly not the first LGBTQ person to be killed because of who he was, and sadly, far from the last. Good evening. I'm Eric Jansen. I'm here with representatives of the Human Rights Campaign, the Transgender Law Center, Equality California, and the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, or GLSEN. I'll introduce them in a minute. This hour, we'll remember Matthew Shepard while looking at the positive progress made over the past quarter century and the recent setbacks for queer rights. And we'll talk about what we can and must do to reassert and protect those rights. Before our discussion, though, let's hear a short, very personal remembrance of Matthew from his mother, Judy Shepard, who appeared on Out in the Bay in November 2009. She was on tour for her book, The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie and a World Transformed. Judy Shepard, thank you so much for being here with us. Welcome to Out in the Bay. Thank you, Eric. Sometimes it's a little hard to know where to begin. It's such a, it's such a painful subject. But I want to write, ask you first, why did you write this book? You must have had to revisit a lot of pain in order to write it. You know, I thought it was going to be really hard, and parts of it were. Um, but it was important to me and to Dennis and Logan as well that we uh, correct some mistakes that are out there in the press uh, about Matt and his family and what happened. And I also wanted um, everyone out there who only knew him as Matthew 
to introduce them to my mat. Um, I wanted him to be more to them than a one-dimensional photograph or an article in the paper. He was a real person who had a family and friends. Um, he had a life before that night. He was found tied to the fence. What are some of the biggest misconceptions you think people have about Matt or the, what they knew as Matthew? Right. Well, just one that he was this angelic child who was, uh, you know, perfect in every way. Totally not the truth. He could actually be quite annoying sometimes. Um, but he was uh, funny. He was smart, uh, loved people, um, very interested in public service, politics, um, loved to perform. He loved the theater, meeting people. Uh, he was just, he was very involved in the world all around him. And uh, but he had issues, you know, he struggled with depression, um, and he smoked uh, too much and was a 21-year-old college student who drank too much and didn't study enough, much like his mother. Uh, and it was a, you know, he just was a young man in search of his life, like everybody else. And he had sort of a habit of, you know, when everyone else had gone to bed, he still wanted to go out and meet yeah, he, people he by was, himself. He was always very restless nature and, uh, and loved to socialize. Um, even when he was very small, it was not ever time to go to bed. It was always time to chat. Uh, it was just part of his makeup. It's just the way he was. Sounds like he had an awful lot of energy. He had a lot of energy. That's Judy Shepard, Matthew's mother, 11 years after his death. We'll hear a bit more from her later. Tonight, I'm joined by Shelby Chestnut, executive director of the Transgender Law Center, the largest national trans-led organization advocating for a world in which all people are free to define themselves and their futures. Welcome to At The Bay, Shelby. Thanks for having me. Melanie Willingham Jaggers, Executive Director of GLSEN, Gay and Les excuse me, Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, an organization that works to ensure that LGBTQ students are able to learn and grow in a school environment free from bullying and harassment. Welcome, Melanie. So good to be with you all tonight. Thank you. Brandon Wolf, National Press Secretary and Senior Director of Political Communications for the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ political lobbying organization within the United States. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you so much. Good to be here. And finally, uh, Tom Temprano, Managing Director of External Affairs for, for Equality California, the nation's largest statewide LGBTQ civil rights organization, and its Nevada-based affiliate, Silver State Equality. Thank you for joining us, Tom. Good to be here. Super. Thank you all for joining us. I'd like to know what memories you have of when you heard the news about the attack on Matthew and his death five days later. I may share mine, too. While you're thinking about that, I want to open the phone lines to hear from listeners. What are your memories of Matthew Shepard's death? How did it affect you? If you were too young or not born yet, what do you know about him now? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or send us a message, a message on Twitter at OutInTheBaySF. That's at OutInTheBaySF. So, yeah, what do you what do you remember about Matthew Shepard's death? Do you remember where you were? I feel, kind of feel like to me it's like one of those things like when I was really young. Um, <laughs> it was where were you when Kennedy was shot? Um, it's kind of like that. Anybody want to... Um, Jump in with that one, Melanie. Yeah, I'll go ahead and start. Thank um, you. I was 17 years old um, and very much not out. Um, and I remember um, this happening and whatever little part of me, right, that knew that I was queer, that I was non-binary, um, understood that the world was not safe for someone like me. Um, and so it was better that I stay asleep to myself. It was better that I stay not awake to my fullness 
um, if I wanted if I wanted to live. This also I remember this happening at the same time that James Byrd was dragged to his death. Um, around the same time he was dragged to his death and lynched by uh, Ku Klux Klan members, I believe in Texas. And so I remember these two things, right? Uh, parts of my both parts of my identity, uh, my blackness and my queerness, being at the top of my brain um, and understanding that if I could prevent the world was the world was not a welcoming place for someone like me. Yeah, heavy. I mean, that's absolutely true. And another very tragic death. Um, I'll just share mine real quickly. I was in Minneapolis at the time. I had gone to Minneapolis to to uh, work for Minnesota Public Radio. I had thought that my relationship that I had here in San Francisco for five years was going to work out long distance for a little while, but I was totally wrong. And uh, six months later, after I was there, uh, things are starting to look up. I was feeling better after this breakup. It was October. Um, National Coming Out Day was there. It was a time of celebration. And then we heard this horrible news about Matthew. And um, I remember being at a candlelight vigil out in one of the parks outdoors in Minneapolis. And it was just such a such a sad day and a sad time. Um, uh, anybody else, Tom or um, or Shelby? Sure. I, I remember I was uh, slightly earlier in my process at that point than Melanie, but had similar feelings. I think I was about 12 years old, had just started to realize that I was queer and the news just reinforced my inclination at the time, which was that I could never come out, that I could never be myself, that I had to to hide or or this sort of thing would happen to me. So I remember it being a traumatic experience that certainly set my own personal coming out back uh, by at least a couple years. Yeah. Um, Shelby, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, for me, um, I was also in Minneapolis. My family had just moved from Montana to Minneapolis, um, I think largely in part because I was an out native queer and trans young person um, who'd faced a ton of school bullying. Um, so I think not only was it super personal for my family and the fear that they had and sort of on the coattails of Brandon Tina's murder in Nebraska just like five years prior, but um, I remember as a young person, um, just thinking that could easily be me or someone in my family. Um, and really remember being in Minneapolis. Um, I think Matthew's murder um, spurred a larger conversation around violence against gay and trans people. And it's just grown over the last 25 years. But I was actually in Loring Park at that vigil probably that you were at when that happened. Yes, Loring Park. Thanks for, thanks for reminding me of the name of the park. Um, uh, Brandon, do you want to add anything to that? You don't have to. <laughs> uh, I appreciate it. I, I'll say I was uh, young. I was a kid when Matthew was murdered, but um, the ripple effects of his murder impacted me and my coming out journey much the same as everyone else. I remember, you know, the the hushed whispers around the kitchen table, uh, people in the community talking about queer folks at a time when I didn't really understand the language or understand that it applied to me. And when I finally got to a place where, you know, it became clear that I was different from my classmates and, and you know, that time when you uh, learn the language to describe yourself, when that time came around for me, um, the stories that I'd heard whispered about Matthew were always in the back of my mind. I was always afraid and looking over my shoulder. I grew up in a really small town, a rural town uh, outside of Portland, Oregon, and there was this pervasive fear that something like that could happen to me too. Um, so while I don't remember where I was uh, when I heard the news for the first time, uh, I do remember how it impacted my own journey to 
self-discovery and and finding the language to understand myself. Great. Thank you very much, Brandon. I want us to hear a little bit more of Judy Shepard from 2009. Uh, This is about why she lost friends after the tragedy, but found new ones as she worked with the Human Rights Campaign and others to expand federal hate crimes law. In your book, you talk about losing friends, at least temporarily, in Casper, Wyoming, your hometown, because it was just too uncomfortable for them to talk with you about their lives, about their children, after you'd lost Matt in such a horrible way. And you write in the book that you knew you had to talk about your loss. You had to talk about Matt's murder at that time, a year after. Why? Well, it's just, uh, you know, there's this conception that sometimes some people think that everyone grieves the same way. And that just isn't true. Uh, You either take it on and make it part of your life or you try to push it away and you ignore it or it overtakes you. And I wasn't going to let any of those things happen to me. We knew as a family that we had to talk about Matt, that we had to try and make life for his friends and his community better because we had that opportunity to do that. Uh, With all the press and Matt's name and our name everywhere, we thought we had a window of opportunity where maybe people would listen to what we had to say. Some of my friends thought I should just be quiet and just move on. I couldn't do that. That would have driven me insane. Um, So they were unhappy with that life decision of ours. Uh, and it also became uncomfortable for me to talk about Matt with them. I think they felt a certain amount of guilt, but also relief that what had happened to Matt had not happened to their child. But then they feel guilty because that's what they felt. So it was, right. you know, it was uncomfortable for them. It was uncomfortable for me. Uh, it became kind of a toxic relationship sometimes. Yeah. So I just, I just had to move on to people who could support me in a way that I needed them. Have you regained any of those friendships? No. You made new friends through the process of becoming an activist. So tell us about that transformation in you, overcoming your public shyness, uh, your distrust of the media. Uh, I get from your book that you're still a very private person, yet here you are now on a national speaking tour. You've been speaking for the past 10, 11 years almost. Yeah, yeah, uh, I was an introvert off the scale on the infamous Meyer Briggs personality test. Um, I just had to overcome that because the message became more important than my, my comfort level. Once I actually started doing it, it was really it wasn't as bad as you might think. Uh, I wasn't selling anything. I wasn't relating, you know, facts exactly. It was my story, and it became like talking to my friends in my living room, telling my story. So uh, the public speaking part wasn't so hard. The media was always difficult. You have very um, well educated, well informed media people, and you have those who are not so much, who don't do any research, and and that's a very uncomfortable interview to do. Uh, so you just kind of overcome that. And I did some work with the human rights campaign with Elizabeth Birch. And for anybody out there who knows Elizabeth, you know that she's a force of nature and you just pretty much want to do whatever she wants you to do. She's an amazing individual and uh, I love her. But she basically just gave me a swift kick in the tush and said, this is what you need to do. This is what you should do. And you know you can do it. Wow. Yeah, that's a uh... That's Judy Shepard. Um, you can hear the full 2009 half-hour conversation with her in its entirety on our website, outinthebay.org. Brandon Wolf from, from the Human Rights Campaign. What do you know about how Judy Shepard and the Matthew Shepard Foundation worked with the HRC and other groups to add sexual orientation, gender identity, and disability to hate crime laws? And, and by the way, Elizabeth Birch, I know, um, I think I'm, the, I'm definitely the oldest person in this conversation. I'm probably closer to Elizabeth Birch, Birch's age, and I know she was one of the very early um, heads of the human rights campaign. 
Yeah, thank you so much. It's um, I have to tell you that I first of all, I love Judy on a deeply personal level, and she's so inspirational to me. Um, I'm going to share a little bit of of my own personal story that I hope will help us get to the answer to your question. In 2016, uh, I survived the Pulse nightclub shooting and lost my best friend. And I hear a lot of my best friend's mother in Judy's voice. I watch her go through that same process of finding purpose in her pain, of turning her grief into a call to action, um, in finding strength in her son's legacy. And so the fact that you know Judy can talk so openly about going from being an introvert uh, to you know being on a national speaking tour and writing a book and helping to change policy in America. People might think that's easy or it comes naturally, but it's really hard. And when you're carrying the weight of grief, um, it's incredibly inspirational that she could she could step into that role and become such an uplifting figure in American history. Um, I know that, you know, uh, Judy and the Human Rights Campaign worked together really closely to help update hate crimes law in this country. Uh, they built a coalition of organizations. You mentioned that, you know, it's not just the LGBTQ plus community uh, that was, you know, that received added protections from this law. It was also people living with disabilities. And so there was a coalition moment that had to happen. Um, and, you know, we've been really proud to to work alongside Judy, not just to get that done, but to continue uh, to honor Matt's legacy with action. But I will say that the power of Judy's personal story the power of her love as a mother is what has helped to make so much progress in this country. And again, I'm just really, really inspired by her. Yeah, no kidding. And I had no idea about you being uh, personally involved in the Pulse nightclub shooting. And I'm sorry for to hear about the loss of your friend. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the hate crime law, the expansions that happened um, in um, 2009. Um, primarily, at, uh, well, if you, you tell me, I know you, I know you know that law better than I do. The the fine points of it. What are the strengths and weaknesses, and some of the limitations of the um, federal hate crime laws? Uh, Shelby, do you want to jump in with that? I'm curious. Transgender people have been uh, seems more and more targets, especially lately. And so, perhaps you have a particular comment on that. This is uh, Shelby Chestnut from the Transgender Law Center. Yeah, you know, and just to name, I've worked in the anti-violence space for a very long time, and Judy is just like one of those people who she's contagious, and the advocacy she's done for survivors of all types of violence is kind of unparalleled. So um, really echoing what Brandon had to say. I think as an organization who's sort of been at the forefront of the, to your point, the growing conversation about violence, um, against trans people through our rapid response and through the tracking and research um, and memorializing of trans people who've lost their lives to violence um, and through our roots of violence reporting um, the last couple of years, we're starting to see a shift in the narrative about violence in our community's face, um, both um, as it's related to interpersonal, but also systemic state-based violence. Um, and I think in the last 25 years, um, along with a lot of learning around violence itself, we've also began to understand that our response as a society to violence um, has, has shifted. Um, most notably, we learned a lot about the inefficiency and inequality of hate crimes legislation. Um, Can you say a little bit more about that? What do you mean by yeah, what so inequalities? 
I think to some extent, we're looking at the limitations of what laws are doing to prevent violence in the first place. And, you know, I think um, Melanie lifted something up earlier, which is especially that a lot of these laws were designed to both protect people on the basis of their race and of their gender and then sexual orientation. But if you look at sort of the systemic violence that we're experiencing throughout the country in different communities, communities of color particularly, are still experiencing some of the highest rates of violence, and it's often at the hands of the state. So we actually launched this year uh, a pretty unique report. It's called We Keep Us Safe, um, Interrogating Hate Crimes Legislation, Um, really looking at how um, different communities have experienced violence, thinking about interactions with the police, sex work, ableism, anti-Blackness, and more to sort of paint a bigger picture around how we talk about violence as a society that, you know, legislation is one aspect, but if we're not doing the prevention and sort of mitigating harm in the first place, a lot of the legislation that will seek to keep us safe is going to do very little if we're not looking at the sort of drivers that are causing it in the first place. So that's sort of, I think, one angle that we're looking at this from. And just just to name, you know, we've been in a multi-year trend of deadly, deadly violence against trans people, most notably Black trans women and Black trans femmes, especially in the South. And I think it's on all of us, uh, particularly those of us who are not in those impacted communities, to start thinking about how do we have conversations around violence impacting our communities. So I'm super excited to be having this conversation with you all and just how relevant it seems right now, even though, you know, Matthew's death was half a half a a quarter of a century ago so that seems wild to say out loud yeah yeah it does um i'm curious what do you think the what what are the factors what are the main factors behind the increase in violence particularly especially in particular communities um I mean, certainly there's the there's the Trump effect, uh, and uh, but I think also is there is there anything to say about the just the amount of stress that is on society right now for so many reasons? We've got climate change, we've got um, I don't know, just all kinds of. Uh, it feels like people are just angrier in general. Is that do you see that as as a factor? Um, I can jump in here. Oh, go ahead, Shelby. Yeah. I- I can kick us off, and I think this is this is the crux of the conversation. Um, I mean, I think there's a myriad of things. If we look at sort of the social determinants that people are operating in, these core sort of things that we as humans all rely on, whether that's access to jobs, housing, education, wh- what have you, when you've created conditions in society that people don't have access to those things, and let's you know lift up the big debate right now, which is, should trans people have health care? Mm-hmm. It seems to be that half of this country is very divided and that's not an issue. But I think what we're looking at is when we start to strip away anyone's rights, you start to see violence rise in all communities. And I think if COVID really showed us one thing, it's that when you don't have access to the things that you need to survive, all communities will start to see an increase in violence and then inter-community violence, really vying for those precious resources. So, you know, when it comes to things like healthcare, I think this is where it's really on the lawmakers and us to hold the lawmakers accountable to say, this isn't about access to healthcare for trans kids. This is about access to healthcare for all people. And when you're limiting one group, you're prioritizing one group over the other. Melanie Willingham-Jaggers from Glisten, you had uh, something you wanted to say there too, right? 
Yeah, um, and I'm really glad I let uh, Shelby go first because um, Shelby is uh, always great to listen to um, and always hits the nail on the head. Um, and I would I would just offer in, in addition that we are in a crisis of well-being, right? And that is at every in every age demographic and at every level in every region of our country. Um, and you know, at Glisten, we work to ensure that kids, right, in K through 12 education are safe and seen and respected in their learning communities. And so what I would offer to this to this question is that, you know, in schools, we teach kids how to be. We we advocate specifically to make sure that LGBTQ plus kids are included. And that's not just supporting queer kids, that's supporting their cisgender and straight classmates to say, yeah, these queer kids deserve respect and you do too. And what we're in, again, is both a crisis of well-being and a recession of respect, right? No one has actually what they need. No one has enough. And as a result, like Shelby said, right, we then become uh, becomes this race to the bottom competing for resources. And so different communities are pit against each other. Now, when it comes to young people, we understand that over 40% of LGBTQ plus youth consider taking their own lives, right? That's over, it's nearly a million kids. It's when, been it's been high for a long time. Is that has that percentage gone up lately, or is it is it stayed a high percentage for quite some time? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we again we are in a crisis of well being. I think COVID has exacerbated so many things. Um, I think you you know you named the Trump effect. So we Eglison have been doing the National School Climate Survey since 1999. I was in high school in 1999. Uh, that was a long time ago. And what we have seen over time is that instances of harassment, assault, bullying, et cetera, were pretty significantly and persistently decreasing over time. And around 2016, they hit a break, those, those decreases, um, the breaks were hit on those decreases. And we've seen slight upticks, right? And what we know from our lived experiences is that, again, folks are in crisis um, and that these uh, the, the conditions in schools, the conditions uh, for young people are exacerbated again by no one, no communities having um, what they need. And here's what I would just offer in closing, which is that we teach kids how to be in the world. And so what we should understand is that when there are people who, whether they are in uh, school age or not, when they're committing violence um, toward LGBTQ plus people, when they are experiencing violence um, against themselves, they have been, this has been taught to them, right? We are in a, we are in a country where, again, no one has enough um, and where these kinds of responses are the, are the flavor of the day. Thank you for that. Uh, I definitely want to talk about uh, how we how we might approach uh, this fear of scarcity and how people are pitted against each other. Let me reintroduce the program. You're hearing the Queer Power Hour on KALW 91.7 FM in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Eric Jansen, fan- founding host of Out of the Bay, now a Queer Power Hour partner. We're remembering tonight and honoring Matthew Shepard and talking about the progress and setback since his killing in October 1998, 25 years ago. My guests are Brandon Wolf, the National Press Secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, Melanie Willingham Jaggers, Executive Director of the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, Shelby Chestnut, Executive Director of the Transgender Law Center, and Tom Temprano, Managing Director of External Affairs of Equality California and Silver State Equality. We want to hear from you, too. When you look back at the last 25 years, what progress do you think we've made? What successes stand out to you most? What current struggles or challenges concern you the most? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. 
or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Out in the Bay SF. Let me give that phone number again, 866-798-8255, 866-798-TALK. If you're a parent of an LGBTQ child or a queer student yourself, what are your thoughts on new policies attacking transgender youth, transgender youth in California schools and in other states for that matter? Um, so as you uh, think about that and call on, uh, let's talk besides the hate crime legislation expansion that happened in 2009, there have been some other victories, uh, other progress points for the queer movement in the last 25 years. What are some of the other successes that uh, any of you would like to highlight? Let's let's turn to California now. Um, uh, Tom Temprano of Equality California. There's some recent uh, good news, perhaps? Sure. Yeah, we and, and you know, being here in California, uh, I do want to highlight the good news, but also do want to make sure that fellow Californians, folks like me who are in San Francisco or L.A., know that uh, despite that progress, we still face tremendous challenges here. But on on the positive front, you know, California continues to be at the forefront of passing legislation that supports our LGBTQ plus community, that supports uh, trans and gender nonconforming youth in our schools, uh, that supports the most marginalized members of our LGBTQ plus community, um, black trans women for, uh, performing survival sex work, um, you know, just the, the sort of the folks that uh, really depend on the sort of progressive legislation like that that we're able to pass here. Part of that is largely due to our pioneering level of LGBTQ plus representation. In 2022, California actually became the first state in the nation to have a 10% openly LGBTQ plus state legislature. Uh, for many years, we had the first um, and only openly LGBTQ plus person of color serving in statewide elected office in the country in Ricardo Lara. Uh, so in California, we have you know managed to achieve incredible representation with incredible legislative results. Yet, you know, to the conversation that we've been having, we are not immune from the trends of increased hate violence against our community. In uh, between 2021-2022, anti-trans and anti-gender non-conforming hate crimes increased by almost 60% here in California, largely, I think, related to the hate-filled calls to action made by politicians, and not just politicians like Ron DeSantis in Florida, but school board members and, and elected officials right here in California are really fueling this increase in hate violence in our communities right here in this state. And even right here in the Bay Area, the small town of Sonol, which had a little issue with uh, banning uh, queer flags uh, recently. Um, you mentioned this, and I'm, I'm not going to say that I exactly want to play a clip here of Randy Fine, but we're going to do that. A Republican in the Florida House of Representatives, he's here speaking at a Christian school where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis celebrated si signing a law against transgender health care. I'm Randy Fine, and I had the privilege of carrying a couple of the bills the governor mentioned um, a little bit earlier. But the important thing for people to know is there is evil in this world, and we are fighting it here today. And the most important job that I have, the most important job the governor has, is that we are parents of children. And when I try to explain to my 11-year-old the bills that I file in Tallahassee, when I try to explain to my 11-year-old what bottom surgery is and what top surgery is, what adult entertainment is, there's no age-appropriate way to do that. 
The fight that we have had here in Florida is about the fundamental nature of childhood itself. Because the other side believes that eight-year-olds should pick their pronouns, that nine-year-olds should read books about sex, that 10-year-olds should be able to see, take puberty blockers, that 11-year-olds should be able to get experimental drugs, and 12-year-olds should be able to have healthy body parts cut off. In the state of Florida, we have said this is going to stop. And we're going to do it because God does not make mistakes with our children. So that's that's what we're up against, and especially people in Florida. I want to ask you, you know, t- f- uh, from my standpoint, these people sound like nuts, but they're making progress, unfortunately. How effective is this uh, from a political point, a p- political viewpoint? How effective is this conservative conservative narrative of protecting youth and letting kids be kids? Yeah, I um, I'll weigh in here because. I just relocated to D.C. from Florida four weeks ago uh, after spending 15 years in the state. And in my previous role, I was the press secretary for Equality Florida, which meant I got to spend a lot of time in the presence of people like Randy Fine. Um, And I will tell you that there is this pervasive narrative that uh, that the right wing peddles that their version of America is inevitable. Uh, This dehumanization, this discrimination Uh, this empowering and emboldening of hate and violence, that this is just the way the cookie crumbles and that they have this overwhelming majority that is now rising to the top. But the truth is most Americans still value freedom at their core. They still believe that people should have the right to get the care they need. They still believe that people should be able to go to school and read books, should be able to decide what they want to wear, should be able to go to the bathroom without the prying eyes of the government looking over the stall. They believe that They should not have to ask people like Ron DeSantis for permission to parent their own children. Um, Time and time again, the data tells us that when people are faced with a choice between freedom and a world like the one you just heard, where right-wing extremists are allowed to strip away people's basic civil liberties, um, they they choose freedom. Um, So while I think folks like Randy Fine, things like uh, folks like Ron DeSantis would like you to believe that their backward vision of America is inevitable, I think time and time again, we've seen the opposite. We've seen the Trump brand of politics defeated, um, you know, not only in presidential election cycles, but in midterm election cycles, we've seen it defeated on local levels, um, you know, and, and the question now becomes, who do we want this country to be? We are at a real crossroads. Uh, where folks like, again, Ron DeSantis, people like Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, they would like us to believe that their vision of America is inevitable, but the choice is ours. I live in this country too. It is my America too. And folks like us who believe that that we should have the freedom to live free of discrimination and violence, um, we are the majority. And so we have to make a decision, certainly in the 2024 election cycle and beyond, about what we want this country to look like. That's Brandon Wolf from the HRC. So how do we, if we are um, uh, a majority of people who do want to have control over our own bodies, you mentioned a lot of them. We, uh, uh, you, you, you might have missed whether or not to bear a child. That's a big one. And it certainly polls have shown that people, generally speaking, uh, across the board support that right. But we're, uh, they're still electing people who don't, don't follow that. So what do we do? Who's got who's got a, who's got some brilliant ideas? And while you're thinking about that, I want to give the phone number one more time and see if any of our folks out there uh, listening might have some ideas. You can give us a call at one 
866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or if you wanted to send us a message on Twitter, we're at out in the Bay SF. What um, what politicians or policies give you the most hope right now? What groups are doing work that you're excited about? Give us a call, 866-798-TALK. So my panel, um, what what can we do? This is Melanie. I'll jump in here. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, just to just to talk a, a little bit about parents' rights and to put it in the in the true light. Two things here. One, the so-called parents' rights folks would rather their children not be truly who they are, and would rather their children be who they, as parents, ascribe their children to be. So, not only is that terrible for their own kids, uh, but they also want that. Uh, that disembodiment, that denial of who they really are, that um, stifling of who their young children are. They want that for their kids. They want that for your kids. They want that for all kids. When we're looking at curriculum censorship, when we're looking at book bans, what we are seeing in education are is in the generation of adults who want children to know less than they do about the world. And what we understand at Glisten is that education is truly the cornerstone of democracy. Right. John Dewey says that um, ed- that democracy is born every generation anew and education is the midwife. And what the other side is doing, what our opposition is doing, is seeking to make um, is seeking to foreclose on the future of our democracy by ensuring that children are miseducated from the very beginning. So they know um, a little about the world as it exists and that they are unprepared to participate powerfully in that world and to build upon um, a a democracy um, when when it comes their time to participate as citizens. The second point I would offer um, is that we have to understand that the climate being pushed by politicians like the one we just heard, this this rhetoric now mirrors and creates the climate in which Matthew Shepard was murdered, right? that actually those who are peddling hate are as responsible for the harassment and attacks and murders that are happening right now to our people as the bigots and hate peddlers were, quote unquote, back then. And what's also important, I think that this both ought to scare us and I hope spur us into action, is that it's not only that these folks are peddling hate and that there are some yahoos in the field um, talking foolishness. These are the folks who are in government. These are the folks who are writing laws. These are the folks who have hijacked both state houses and also now some of our parts of our national government and are pushing this um, regressive uh, right-wing Christian nationalist view of our country that does not include queer people, does not include people who are uh, p- folks of color, does not include people from communities who have experienced marginalization. And we must wholesale reject that future um, that they are proposing and seeking to impose on all of us. So what can what can we as Listeners, as individual people, uh, what can we do to help? What is, how are, for example, how is Glisten working with educators and teachers, and how are what are teachers doing in the in the face of this? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, when um, as a collective, we're fighting back, and we're working to teach our young people that they belong, that they are accepted, that they are affirmed and safe and celebrated for exactly who they are. When school districts started banning LGBTQ plus books, Glisten launched the Rainbow Library. Since 2019, we have provided more than 56,000 affirming books that represent queer folks, um, queer families, 
uh, to over 5,800 schools in over 30 states, right? We're, we're reaching uh, over 5 million students. When Florida passed its Don't Say Gay legislation, we at GLSEN partnered with local um, organizations to make sure that over 70 million people in Florida saw LGBTQ plus supportive billboards. When the college board sided with white supremacy, GLSEN joined the Freedom to Learn Coalition and delivered a petition with tens of thousands of signatures opposing censorship of black history and history from communities of color, right? So what we understand now is that in this moment, um, not only are the majority of people with us, over 70% of people in this country understand that LGBTQ plus people deserve respect and deserve to participate in our democracy, we know that it's imperative that we rise up, right? So at GLSEN, we have this campaign called Rise Up, which means that even as we are fighting in school systems, we will never stop fighting to make sure that schools and classrooms are safe and affirming for our kids. We also know that we have to go to the streets. We also know that we have to make sure that these young people, where they are seeing queer, supportive, and affirming um, books being taken out of their libraries, and we're seeing safe space stickers being torn down by um, foolish administrators, they also need to know that out in the world um, that people like us are always fighting for them. So um, at GLSEN, we're looking to get 2 million um, signs of and beacons of support and light um, out across the country on cars and yards and yard signs, et cetera, uh, to make sure that queer kids, no matter where they are, see that there are folks out there like us who see them, support them, and are fighting for their right to exist. Fantastic. Uh, that's that's you, you said a lot there. Um, I'm curious if uh, the other organizations here, like Equality California, HRC, uh, Transgender Law Center, if there is a bit of a, um, you know, take the action to the streets uh, attitude, is this something that has to be done? Or can you work from within this political system, which is uh, kind of, um, you know, hard to work with right now? <laughs> Tom Tumprano. I would say, sure. I would say here in California, we need to continue to take it to the streets, but we also need to take it to the ballot box at all levels of government. As I mentioned here in California, we had the first ever 10% LGBTQ plus state legislature, every statewide constitutional offer and a, officer and a supermajority of both of our houses of our legislature are LGBTQ plus affirming. But where we're seeing the the sharpest attacks against our community and trans youth in particular and LGBTQ youth is in local school boards. It's school boards who are trying to push forced outing policies that would out uh, trans students regardless of the safety of that student. It's uh, school boards and city councils banning the flying of pride flags, which in 2023 just is, is unconscionable here in California. So I think it's especially important in this 2024 cycle that folks not just focus at the top of the ticket, though, you know, if, if you had the misfortune of watching that awful Republican debate, clearly trans youth are going to be used as a, a political tool for far right extremists in this election. But I would just really encourage folks out there not to lose sight of where so many of these fights that impact the daily health and well-being of members of our community are happening, which are on the school boards, which are on the city councils, and want to encourage folks to pay attention to those races. And if they've got someone who is anti-trans, who is anti-LGBTQ+, running in their local community, run against them. Hold those elected officials accountable. Hold those candidates accountable. We need to beat these folks at all levels of government. Indeed. Uh, Shelby, any comments from you? Yeah, ditto to what my colleagues have said. The thing that I would like to just give some contextualization around is that 
since 2016, we've seen a major increase in these bills and we've seen a major amount of spending by the opposition. But at the end of the day, trans people are winning because these politicians across the country are proposing bills day after day, year after year, becoming more extreme and and more harming to the next person that's going to come along. And we're either defeating them or winning in court. And we're doing that by not outspending them. Across the country, you're seeing more trans leadership than ever before. You know, there was that tagline in that terrible Republican comment that was, you don't want your eight-year-old sharing their pronouns. But the reality of it is, is our eight-year-olds are sharing their pronouns. So it's on us to show up for trans youth, to show up for young people, because they're sending us in the direction that we needed to be headed in. And if we would just get out of their way and listen to what they're demanding, I think we'd be living in a world that's much more fair, including all the people who don't want us to succeed. Okay, very good. I want to go to an email from a listener asking if the organizations represented here are helping pro-LGBT candidates win office. How can uh, we support LGBT candidates who are who are going for for uh, going for office? Yeah, I will say absolutely, one hundred percent, yes. Uh, the human rights campaign that is uh you know a, a prime focus of ours we've got uh, candidates right now in virginia we have an election in virginia on november 7th and so uh, we've endorsed a number of candidates uh in that state for the state assembly obviously 2024 will come around and we'll have a whole host of other candidates from around the country um but to answer the question yes i, I think we've got to we've got to change things from the inside and we have to approach it from the outside uh, we have to have people mobilizing. We have to have people civically engaged. People have to show up to school board meetings. They have to show up to city commission meetings. They have to show up to state legislative hearings. And we also have to exercise our voices at the ballot box. I want to um, just briefly touch on something that Tom said that sort of sparked me. Or may, I'm, I'm sorry, it was Shelby. Um, I firmly believe that we will win this fight because we're right and that the right wing is fighting back so hard in this moment because they know they've already lost. The culture is the culture. Um, our country is browner and queerer and more diverse than it ever has been. And this right wing backlash is a desperate attempt to hold on to the last vestiges of control they have over a culture that they simply don't control anymore. And so um, it is really important that we exercise that outside power that people understand, listen, our opponents are reaping the benefits of a decades long effort to wage war on the local and state level. Uh, while we were thinking about who was running for president, they were putting people up to run for school board. And that is the thing they're reaping the benefits of right now. And so we have to have people who are civically engaged and willing to engage on those local and state levels from the outside. And yes, we need the right politicians in place who care more about doing the work of the people and supporting their constituents than trying to access power, wealth, and fame. So the Human Rights Campaign, if you want to plug in there, we've got a whole host of ways you can support pro-equality candidates in California, around the country. But I would encourage everybody, find the way that makes the most sense for you to be engaged in this moment. Pledge to vote and 
and do that extra thing. Share your story with your neighbors. Bring somebody to a school board meeting. Pledge to vote and make a difference in your community. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, We are very close to the end of our hour. I'm going to ask Shelby and Tom and Melanie to make a a quick uh, kind of closing comment if you'd like to. Let's start with Shelby Chestnut, Executive Director of the Transgender Law Center. Yeah, I will say um, California, you all are a great state. You're doing amazing work. You've done amazing work for a long time. I think that you need to start talking to your cousins in other states and remember that you might not be trans. You might not have a trans person in your family, but it doesn't mean that you can't show up for trans rights right now. Um, A great way to do that this next week, um, we're hosting our annual gala actually in the Bay Area. So if you go to transgenderlawcenter.org, there's a way to come support our event and have some fun and celebrate trans rights. Very good. Thanks very much. Tom Temprano from uh, Equality California. Oh, I thought it's Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you again for this conversation. You know, just really uh, wanted to encourage folks listening to this program to stay engaged, to, you know, as Brandon said, well, to show up to your local school board meeting and to vote and to be a candidate for office and uh, and continue to fight even here in California. And to Shelby's point also, Call your cousins in in other parts of the country and make sure that they're also standing up for trans youth in particular at this time. I've got some cousins to call. I guess I better do it. Melanie Willingham Jaggers, uh, executive director of Glisten, uh, closing comment in a, I don't know a minute or less. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, here's what I would leave you with, which is that hope is a discipline, right? We don't do this because it is easy. We do this because it is right, and we will win. Um, and that. The fight for dignity, it's a fight for dignity today, right? We are also fighting to ensure a democracy big enough for all of us tomorrow with an eye on the horizon that is a liberation and a democracy big enough for us all. The last thing I'll say um, is that, you know, we, we all know the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He says the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He also says that it's our jobs to adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the chamber of pessimism. So here's what I'd like for you all to do is go to glisten.org slash rise up and take the pledge to protect and affirm LGBTQ plus youth. We gotta let we have to let them know that we've got their back and that we will do what Shelby said is get out of their way and follow their lead. Uh, and we will go to the mat protecting them always. Thank you very much. We're going to have to leave it there. We'd love to have you all back on the program in the future, hopefully to talk about more progress. The guests tonight were Shelby Chestnut, Executive Director of the Transgender Law Center, Tom Temprano of Equality California and Silver State Equality, Melanie Willingham Jaggers of Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, and Brandon Wolf of the Human Rights Campaign. Thanks for joining us for this evening's Out in the Bay takeover of the Queer Power Hour. This edition was supported in part by KLW's Queer Story Fund and by longtime Out in the Bay patrons Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Our lead producer and director tonight was Kendra Klang, and our studio engineer was Tarek Ansari. Thank you both. Thanks also to David Kwan for audio clip editing and his creative input. If you'd like to keep queer voices coming to your ears, please consider a donation to Out in the Bay on our website, outinthebay.org, where you can hear our 2009 half-hour interview with Judy Shepard in its entirety and lots of other past shows. That's outinthebay.org. You could also contribute to KLW's Queer Story Fund. I believe that when you chip in at klw.org, you can specify the Queer Story Fund in the comments field. I'm Eric Jansen. Thank you so much for listening and for your support and encouragement over the years. Have a good night.
Support for KALW and the Queer Power Hour comes from Family Caregiver Alliance, offering support groups for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender caregivers of adults with chronic health problems. More information can be found at caregiver.org.